Hello, I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Do you mind, Jonathan, if I just recap the past 24 hours in Israel for just you? Just dive right in. <laughs> so, new prime minister in Israel, uh, Yair Lapid, the former prime minister, Naftali Bennett, uh, saying that he will uh, soon retire from politics, at least from now. Israel is officially going to elections November 1st, 2022, and the Knesset officially dissolves. That is a country that can cram four years of news into one day. That should be our slogan. And how is your day, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, no, that is quite something. We're going to talk all about all of that, obviously. I have to say, I saw the pictures, as you and I speak, this is more or less just happened, of the kind of handover with the two of them changing seats. And yep. you think about everything else in going on, particularly like in the United States, where one outgoing leader did not want to make way for the other one. And that, I know it's not the same, but that kind of peaceful, willing transfer of power like that, quite moving in a way to see that somebody giving up the seat and, you know, uh, hugging or shaking hands, whatever. Right, they're actually the hugging, person. yes. Yeah, and and you see that moment the Knesset dissolves, they stand up, right, because they have to change seats in the Knesset plenum. So Yair Lapid becomes from alternate prime minister to the prime minister and Naftali Bennett the exact opposite. So they kind of change seats as a symbolic gesture. They hug each other. Uh, Yair Lapid later tweeted this and said, Toda Naftali achi. Thanks, Naftali my brother or bro, yeah. that is like the very, yes, friendly transition of power rotation government that actually works. Last time that happened in the mid-80s in Israel and two people who really didn't have a lot of love lost um, between them, Yitzhak Shamir and Shimon Peres. I'll just continue that uh, image that you talked about, Jonathan, because everyone kind of get, gets up to hug them or the coalition got up to hug them. And then Yair Lapid says to Naftali Bennett, I mean, bro, you took my phone. And he responds, well, well, you took my job. So that, that was the, the continuation of that conversation that you're talking about, all obviously in a very friendly uh, mood, definitely when you take compare the transition between Netanyahu and Bennett a year and 18 months. Right, where Netanyahu wouldn't even do the formal handover stuff, but obviously in my mind was Trump and Biden. We're going to actually talk about a bit of that later on. But just the unwilling consent or even with you know withheld consent this is the opposite obviously different they're coalition partners we know that there wasn't an election where one lost and one won i know that too but just that handover it's a reminder look in the democratic world we need whatever we can cling to at the moment a peaceful transition of power so that's um going on in your world i have to say in 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 my world i'm just sort of on the road a lot at the moment, talking about this book of mine, The Escape Artist, and there's lots of book festivals in the summer, and I've been speaking at all of those. But, um, you know, I, I did think just because of the conversation you and I had about the book and some of those themes, they came back to me a little bit because I've done events all over in Wales and in Scotland, north of England, south of England. But I did an event which is part of the British Isles, but not part of uh, the UK, which is in the Channel Islands, those, you know, handful of islands between England and Britain and France, in Guernsey, the Guernsey Literary Festival. And it was just really interesting to me because it was just very different. Guernsey and the rest of the Channel Islands were famously occupied by the Nazis in the 1940s. And so this means here I was talking about the story of Rudolf Verber, who escaped from Auschwitz in order to warn the world, along with Fred Wetzler. And I was saying this to an audience of people, for the first time, who lived under Nazi occupation. 
And there was just a sort of intensity in the room about it. When I've spoken to audiences before, until now, there's a kind of, how can I put it? There's almost a sort of, there is a feeling that, okay, the people we're hearing about were the baddies and we were morally completely distant from that because either we're Jewish or we were British and we fought the Nazis and that's fine. It's just more complicated in Guernsey because they were occupied and obviously some people, as happened everywhere that was occupied, worked with the Nazi occupation and there are families there who still have people, their parents or grandparents, who got caught up in all this. It just made it a more you know, intense occasion. And I wasn't in a way fully expecting that. That's been part of my week. And I've just been taking the book into all kinds of places. You know, Bradford Book Festival this week, fantastic festival. But a city that has a very large Muslim community, again, that's a different angle. You just realise the, the book is the same, but who you're talking to uh, <laughs> makes, makes, the, makes the encounter very different. Wow. I'm, I'm just stuck, still stuck with the, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which was a this very sweet book. And uh, we should tell our listeners that we talked about, you wrote on Friday that you're going to Guernsey and then silence for like three and four days. And when I tried to get you to tell me a little bit about it, you said you're saving it for the podcast. Yes, I was That's doing, a, I was, yes, I was following word. our instruction to save it for the podcast. That's quite true. <laughs> uh, but the thing about the film, actually, which they, they sort of I was talking about that. the book. I didn't see the film. Oh, it's a film as well with Lily James okay. and, and so on and the book. But as you get off the, um, ferry i went there by boat from the south coast mm-hmm. of england and like, you just step off the sh- onto the shore and there's a big poster of the film so they're really leaning into that as a sort of promotional thing but a ton of history on those islands and um my book sort of spoke to part of it so wow um yeah there were th- there were three jewish women from that island who were deported and from guernsey to and and, and were killed in auschwitz that is the closest the UK or Britain got to experiencing, you know, the occupation by the Nazis and having a little test of what would we have done? Well, the Channel Islands are kind of there as an example. And, you know, so it's a, it's a fascinating interaction between two. Anyway, we have got so much to pack in given everything that's been going on. We've got a very good and brilliant guest coming on later on, Michael Goodman, fantastic analyst, philosopher, thinker about Israel, but you should fill us in with this incredibly intense 24 hours. Well, well, first of all, it's official and we're going to elections. We have four months to talk about this, but I want to sort of set the stage of and talk about who the players are and who we should be uh, watching. First of all, Israel has a new prime minister. We've had three prime ministers in a little over a year. It is uh, Yair Lapid. We've talked about him a lot in this podcast. Obviously, Israelis never need to be introduced to Yair Lapid because he's a face that they've seen for 30 years or more. Up until now, the foreign minister and alternate prime minister before that, obviously, TV host, news anchorman, uh, wrote columns, wrote books, wrote TV series, really the biggest star in Israeli television who's sort of pivoted to politics 10 years ago, had a pretty arduous time in trying to prove to Israelis, I think I would say that he had uh, two Achilles heels. One is that he never had a serious, in what Israelis view as a serious combat service in the military, and the second is that he comes from television, and I'm sad to say that took a while for Israelis to take him seriously. So that, you know, that was a lot of hard work. That's I very say unjust, took- Yonid. I mean, who is more serious <laughs> in this line of work? I thought you were going to say that the headline you're taking from this conversation is television personality in Israel turns prime minister in a span of 10 years. And, and then wait and look at me and say, you, yes. look what you look what you could have become uh, in the most it's Jewish all still of ahead. comments. It's all still ahead, Yonid. It's all possible. 
I agree. If I have a personality transplant, for sure. Um, so Yair Lapid has his work cut out for him. He does not go into this role in, a, in normal circumstances. He is the head of a caretaker government. He will uh, hold this position for four maybe five months. If there's no government formed after the elections, he might hold on to it a little bit more. But this is very difficult. This is obviously one of the most complicated positions in the world. Add to that the fact that his own coalition will sort of be working against him. Benny Gantz has no vested interest in the fact that Yair Lapid will continue to be a prime minister. Merav Micheli is not his biggest fan ahead of the Labour Party. So this is going to be a very tumultuous road uh, for him. It's interesting about um, Benny Gantz. Because I remember when we first started doing this, I was confidently thinking that surely he was the dead man walking of Israeli politics. Uh -huh. What would be the point, I remember saying, in voting for Benny Gantz? And yet he's still around as a sort of player and people, well, you tell me, I mean, you know, is he somebody, you know, who's got a future still ahead of him? Not only is he still around, not only does he have a future ahead of him, I would really watch closely what Benny Gantz is doing in this election. Let me explain a little bit about that, Jonathan. You, you said in the past, and you were right about that, who would vote for him? Remember, this was the messiah of the center-left coming in 2019 to beat Netanyahu only a year later to break the heart of all of his followers who saw him as this, uh, I don't know, descendant of Yitzhak Rabin and join in a coalition with uh, Netanyahu himself himself, then crushed under Netanyahu's promise to make him a prime minister in rotation, a promise that he didn't keep, and then he went to elections. Benny Gantz really crawling his way back into Israeli politics and winning eight seats. But again, we're in a world that changed. It doesn't matter anymore, as Naftali Bennett proved, right, becoming prime minister with six seats. It doesn't matter how many seats you have. It doesn't even matter how much political experience you have. It matters what, you know, how politically powerful you are. And in a situation of a deadlock between the BB block and the anti-BB block, the most powerful person on the board is the person who can play on both fields. That is why Naftali Bennett became prime minister, because he was willing to be brave enough, bold enough, or depending on who you ask, maybe uh, dishonest enough to detach himself from the ideological camp that he comes from, the Netanyahu block, and become uh, the prime minister of the anti-BB bloc. Gantz is the same thing. Gantz has the tacit support of the ultra-Orthodox, by the way, something that Lapid doesn't have. If after the elections, Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't have 61 and can't form a coalition, then Benny Gantz becomes the most powerful player on this board just to show you how a mere year or two can change someone's political trajectory in this country completely. The talk right now is that he will run with Gidon Saar, thus creating a party that is sort of center, center right, trying to woo the, the voters who are sort of, I think, disengaged from Netanyahu. And then you're not going to see a head-to-head -head war between uh, Netanyahu and Lapid. You're going to see a three-way contest between Gantz, Netanyahu and Lapid. Completely fascinating because the, my reasoning before for saying he was dead man walking was if you voted for him to be the centre-left heir to Rabin guy and then he sits with Netanyahu, he is finished. He's no longer a possible credible centre-left person. But if you're on the right, get the real thing. Why have Diet Coke if you can have Coke? Vote for Netanyahu. So what was the point? It seems to me he is just living proof that Israel and Israeli politics disobeys the laws of physics, you know, politically. Because Gantz, there's no reason for him to sort of exist politically. And yet 
though he continues, I don't know how he even gets over the threshold. I don't know why people would vote for him. But you've made exactly the case and that there's enough people who do think he's a kind of respectable, respected figure of authority, enough to get even just four, five, six seats, which could make all the difference. The, the I, poll that we published yesterday talks, if he runs with Guidon Sal, talks about 15 seats and that's already a, a substantial No, that's a, that's number, a substantial right? block. I mean, if Yair Lapid is still stuck in the 2021, then you see that this is a, a very substantial number. Look, and it also suggests that, in a way, my old frame, which is either you're left and you want a figure from the left, or you're right and you vote for a figure from the right, that frame is old and outdated. And actually, there is a sort of vital center. And that's what we're going to be talking about with Micha Goodman later on very much. But it's proof that if they're polling at 15, those two, it shows there is a constituency for that. Tony Blair, uh, former British Prime Minister, has been talking about how centrist politics has a supply problem in the West, not a demand problem, meaning mm -hmm. his view is that the voters really want parties that represent this kind of centre ground. And very often in Britain, for example, there just isn't any supply. Politicians aren't stepping forward to fill that gap. In Israel, actually, really interestingly, there are quite a few competing for that place and that terrain. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Gantz ticket is very much there. We shouldn't sort of close the book too fast just yet on Naftali Bennett without at least saying something about what we think, you know, he was prime minister for a year. Is he just going to be what I would call a pub quiz question, you know, that he becomes a sort of trivial pursuit question. Who was that prime minister that everyone's forgotten that did a year? Or does he leave any kind of imprint, legacy? Did he have an impact? I, I know we've talked about the coalition, what it meant. I mean him personally as PM. Did he do anything? Well, look, first of all, I think that really is dependent upon whether he returns. He's a young man. He's 50 years old. Uh, he was already part of a very, very unique group of Israelis called former prime ministers, right? We only have three of those besides, apart from Bennett himself, it's Olmert, it's Barak, and it's Netanyahu. He's a man with a lot of ambition. Like, he can definitely come back. And I think that his tragedy, look, at the end of the day, he's a man with a lot of goodwill that uh, ran into a lot of bad intentions in a situation that was really impossible. He and the Ilapi tried to do something that was, and he called it an experiment, we talked about this a lot, which was saying, yes, let us bring in Israelis, the most diverse group, and try and run this coalition. It was very difficult and ultimately failed. Uh, he had eight parties in his coalition. But the government ran... Uh, you know, had its achievements, relative quiet in the South or uh, dealing with coronavirus, with COVID without any lockdowns. Like there's things to present here to the Israeli public. And of course, some sort of message of unity that wasn't part of the Israeli discourse before. Um, he will have the credentials to come back. He's not going to do it for a while. That's for sure. So the big news outside Israel, I suppose, came from the United States with this Supreme Court ruling formally overturning uh, Roe versus Wade, that judgment from uh, nearly 50 years ago, which guaranteed a woman's right to an abortion. And that is now overturned, which means those states, and it could be almost as many as half of America's 50 states, that want to ban abortion can, and several did, straight away. We talked about this, you and I, when a version of the judgment was leaked a while back. And so people knew this was coming. Where Israel sits on this issue is, to me, very interesting. Where Jews sit on it, very interesting. We got into that a bit last time we talked about it, how even quite religious Jews are actually, in American terms, quite liberal 
on this issue. I mean, I suppose just one of the things it's forcing someone like me to conclude is that Donald Trump, clownish though he often was, and easy to dismiss as a kind of ignoramus and a buffoon and all kinds of things, is turning into, almost just with this judgment alone, he's proving to be one of America's most consequential presidents, simply because of putting three people on that court, which is an amazing number, three in in a four-year term, all of whom voted with the majority to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. I mean, that is a judgment that will could and there's no I can't see a reason why it won't live on for decades and have an impact for generations and there could be more to come I mean people are warning that the legal logic of this judgment in the Dobbs case which is what led to the overturning of Roe versus Wade that could be applied to contraception the rules you know liberalizing making possible equal marriage same-sex marriage all those things could be gone on the legal logic that led them to overturn Roe versus Wade. I mean, this is a really serious legacy that Donald Trump has left. I'm interested to just to know, because we already talked about how Israel is pretty liberal in practice on this, just whether there are people in Israel on the right, conservatives, others, I don't know, who are so often influenced by what happens in America, whether they're looking at this and saying, hmm, this could be something we should do. So I wanna, I'm going to answer your question, but in a very Jewish uh, fashion, I'm going to go through a longer <laughs> route to get there, because I should say that on the heels of this decision in the United States, Israel actually eased its regulations even a little bit more. It was the sort of final decision uh, in this coalition by uh, the Minister of Health, who's the head of the most liberal party in this coalition, the head of Meretz, it was Nitzan Horowitz, and he eased the uh, regulations in two ways. I'll just remind our listeners really briefly of how Israel does it in the way that um, in Israel, first of all, abortion in general is a much less controversial issue. And what happens thus far is that there is a committee that needs to authorize an abortion. So any woman can appear in front of this uh, committee and 99% of these requests are authorized, but you have to go sort of through a humiliating process in which you have to tell the committee why you want an abortion. If you give one out of two reasons, either mental health or that the child is out of wedlock, which means in many cases adultery, then you get the abortion. It's subsidized by the state. The only problem with what I just described, A, that it's humiliating, B, that it's sort of the state encouraging women to lie. So the regulations that were eased this week were saying two things. One, no more uh, uh, being physically in front of the committee. You just have to fill in forms. Still intrusive, but it's much less of a problem. And secondly, the the state will also subsidize uh, pills for uh, abortions in the first week's of the pregnancy, obviously a very different picture uh, than uh, the United States. And Nitzan Holovich, who's the Minister of Health, uh, wrote that a woman has a complete right over her body and the Supreme Court decision in the United States is a sad process. This was his peg to actually get this change uh, done right before the end of the coalition. Now, to answer your question, uh, my friend... But just just before you jump, get to that, I mean, none of that was a response to the judgment in America, was it? I mean, none of it was saying, oh, the Americans have done this, so we must quickly do that. No, no, that's a good question. What happened was that this is a a reform that they wanted to pass for a while. This was their plan. The plan was already written. But the decision in the United States was a good peg to say publicly, we don't want that, so let's pass the regulations and let's do it quickly because the coalition is unraveling, so we have to do this now. So, So, yes, the timing was fit for it. The plan was already in motion uh, in any case. So you asked about the effects of American conservatism in Israel. And I think this is a really important topic uh, because 
What I said notwithstanding, right, and Israel being relatively liberal when it comes to abortions, or at least in practice being liberal when it comes to abortions, I think that we need to notice that there is a trickling effect of American conservatism in the Israeli public sphere. Now, it's not only in the sense that, and this is the, we're hearing from the right for a while, and now even more so is saying, look, we need more right-wing judges on the Supreme Court. And not only do we need more right-wing judges on the Supreme Court, we need politicians to appoint these judges. We need the government to do it, like the president does in the United States. Obviously, Israel has a different system, and here it's the it's a committee in the Knesset. I think the people who are part of the committee are judges and lawyers and politicians, so it's a different, completely different picture. But there's more to that. What we're seeing in recent years is more and more the American conservatism and the and sort of texts that are anti-gay, anti-transgender, and anti-abortion suddenly appearing in the Israeli public sphere. You have people like Bezalel Smotrich saying, I think abortion at some stages is murder. I don't want anyone to have an abortion, even if she's 17 and out of wedlock. And yes, a woman has a right over her own body, but she doesn't have a right about over someone else, even if uh, that is inside her own body. Texts that sound more and more like part of either the evangelical community or what you would hear on Fox News. Now, why is this happening? This is no coincidence, Jonathan. There are uh, foundations and funds, and I don't think it's a coincidence that CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, will hold an event in Israel in June. So you have these organizations, uh, American conservatism coming into uh, Israel in larger numbers. Uh, the best example of recent weeks is Hatikva Fund, is an American fund in Israel that had a conservative conference in this country. And what they're trying to do really is to say, we should implement American conservatism in Israel and give the Israeli conservative movement its own ideology. Because what is the ideology of the Israeli right right now? Obviously, Palestinian issues, which are less relevant right now in public discourse. Obviously, they support Netanyahu. Again, not enough of an ideology. And they're saying, let us give these arguments to the Israeli right, and especially the religious Zionists. They fit quite easily together and let them hold these same arguments. I'm just going to say that in the issue of abortion, it's the only thing that doesn't really make sense because Jewish halacha, generally speaking, we talked about this, is much less strict on issues of abortion than Christianity. So that's the only area where it kind of feels like the thing doesn't fit. The cut and paste that American conservatism is trying to do here doesn't really fit. Yeah, I think it's not just the only area, but absolutely, you know, the last thing Israel needs is, it seems to me, is to import abortion politics from the US into Israel. I mean, it's like it doesn't have enough divisions of its own. It has to bring in that one, not a good idea. Although what's interesting about it, the, even the idea that people are thinking about it, is because in a way there is this gap or vacuum where the defining or sort of cementing, binding ideology of the Israeli right, rather, might otherwise be. The obvious area before would have been on the what always used to be called the security question, the issue, the question of Israel's relationship with the Palestinians. In a way, and it's very telling, in, in our conversations about the elections, we've barely talked about that. That used to be the issue that defined Israeli election campaigns. What are we going to do about that question, the existential question of Israel's relationship with the Palestinians, with the occupation, with the occupied territories? What do we do about it? And it's been absent, I think, the last election, and it's certainly not really featuring in much of the politics around the next one. I think that is the right moment, really, to introduce our guest for this podcast, because he's really thought a lot about this and can say much, much more, particularly about that point about 
the sort of vacuum where or the void where the old ideological battles used to be. Uh, but why don't you um, introduce him and tell us all about him? Micha Goodman is a philosopher, a best-selling author, a public intellectual, someone who really articulates the ideology of the Israeli political center and center-right. Um, I would say that his ideas give uh, gave the main players of this government the glue they needed, obviously not enough glue. Um, Micha, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's great and a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure for us too. And, you know, you were sort of deeply invested in this notion that there's more that unites us than divides us. Yes. So what happened? Did that prove to be wrong? I don't think so. I don't think so. This government was an incredible experiment in politics. And to understand this unique Israeli experiment in politics, I think we have to understand what's unique about the Israeli political psyche. Okay. So we're living in a very polarized world. And polarization in Israel is just a part of a global trend of extreme polarization. Now, there's many definitions for polarization. Here's my definition. Polarization is a very specific brand of hate. Or put it differently, in a polarized world, a very specific brand of hate flourishes. Mm -hmm. So Israel is just part of that world. And in Israel, right-wingers despise left-wingers and left-wingers despise right-wingers. And they think it's local. They think it's very Israeli. No, it's, that's how, that's how the Dutch are behaving today. The Brazilians, the Pol, the, in Hungary and the U.S., that's in France. Mm -hmm. But what's different in Israel is the following is that in the whole world, when people hate each other, they also disagree with each other. Like, uh, I'm very influenced by um, Ezra Klein, his mm -hmm. work on polarization. He wrote yeah. a great book I highly recommend, mm -hmm. Why We're Polarized. And he shows how in the U.S. you measure polarization using two scales. One scale, the emotional scale, mm -hmm. like the emotional distance between right and left. That's a different way of saying how much does the right hate the left and the left hates the right. Mm -hmm. And the emotional distance is growing. But there's also an ideological scale. Mm -hmm. That's the ideological gap between right and left on issues like abortion, guns, immigration, national security issues. And the ideological gap grows. And that makes a lot of sense, right? When people, when the ideological gap grows, the emotional gap grows. When people don't agree with each other, they have a tendency to hate each other. Yeah. This brings us to the paradox of Israel. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. It's a well-kept secret. But if we measure Israelis... My people, mm -hmm. ideologically, throughout the our years. Our people, Michal. Our people, sorry, you need our people. Jonathan, we're just ganging up against you here. A little bit, them. I think yeah, he's yeah. feeling it, he's feeling it. <laughs> so, so if we measure, if we take Israel's pulse ideologically, we'll realize that in the past decade, Israelis got very close to each other. You know, I think Yonit and Jonathan, Israelis agree with each other today more than they ever did before. The ideological gap between Israelis narrowed, narrowed dramatically. Mm -hmm. At the same time, emotionally, the gap just grew and grew. So that's what's unique about Israeli polarization, the paradox of Israeli polarization. I'm very taken by this idea that, and it was expressed in the form of this coalition, that there is a very big center now, you've written about this, in Israeli politics, where actually you estimated at almost 75 of the 120 members of the Knesset more or less agree on the big strategic uh, existential questions facing the country, that, you know, these are people who agree that probably you're not going to get a end of conflict peace deal between Israelis and Palestinians. They agree equally that, you know, the, you, you can't settle all of the occupied territories and hope to bring the coming of Messiah, you know, that those dreams have been 
marginalized. And that this coalition sort of expressed that new, as you've written, this kind of consensus that's there in Israel. To me, the paradox that I want to understand then is if it wasn't ideology that meant this government couldn't flourish, because in your formulation, it was expressing a kind of agreed consensual ideology. Why then Great could question. the right-wing members of that coalition not stomach sitting in government with the left? And they came under all this pressure. Yoni and I have talked about it over the weeks as it was happening in real time, this pressure to break away. You know, I know you've said it's because they hate each other, but I'm asking in a way why this why? paradox that people can hate each other when they don't disagree, because we get why they hate each other when they do. So in this new political world where we're highly polarized when politics is going into climate change. Mm -hmm. So in politics, we have two different animals playing and we have political opinions. My opinions are my worldview about how do we solve problems. And then there's political identities. Now, identities are not about the world, not how we, we solve problems. It's about who I am and what group do I belong to. So in America, people, it's important for many people to see themselves as conservative or as liberals. And in Israel, there's many people that's very important for them to see themselves as right-wingers or as centrists or as left-wingers. So while we have political opinions and political identities in this world, as Ezra Klein points out, mm -hmm. people's political identities are more important to them than their political opinions. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, in Israel, mm -hmm. the hate is between identities. The agreement is between opinions. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the most important observation that helps us unlock this mystery, the paradox, the enigma of Israeli polarization. We hate each other because of the clash of political identities. Mm -hmm. We agree with each other when it comes to opinions about policies. So this government was invented based on the following idea. Let's make politics about policies, not about identities. We agree on policies, and therefore, we could have a government that works together to implement policies while the government contains diversity of identities. Mm -hmm. Only in Israel, this is the paradox of Israel, mm -hmm. you can have separate identities sharing very similar policies on day-to-day -day issues because in Israel, most people agree on almost all issues. That's yeah, here's where I, I have to challenge this yes. for a little bit. Please. Because it seems like there's much... You say, okay, we agree on, I don't know, 75%, okay? But do we really? I mean, in the sense that we... Look, there's an argument going on whether... Arab parties should or be or not be part of the coalition. Of course, there's a huge argument about what the conflict with the Palestinians, how it is supposed to be resolved. There are arguments about religion and state and how involved should the chief rabbinate be. I mean, we argue about everything. There was, I think, mm. leading up to the Independence Day this year, there were two weeks of arguing about fireworks. Like, we s seriously mm. disagree, don't we? I don't think so. You, let's, you dis let's disagree on that. Okay. okay. To prove I don't think so. my let, point. Let me walk. Th let's, let's walk through this. Okay. You mentioned the most, the two most loaded issues. Right. Religion and state and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Right. And Israelis always debated these issues. And something happened to both issues. I'll start with the conflict, okay? Reality kicked in. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say the peak of this debate was the 1990s. Mm-hmm. The right was speaking about Eretz Israel Hashlema, mm -hmm. which means, I don't know how to translate this, 
the completeness of the, the land. Of Israel, yeah, the completeness right. of the land, yeah. Right. Like the land has to be complete. All the land is ours. We can't give up one inch. If we give up one inch, we're somehow sabotaging a messianic process. Mm-hmm. That was the right. The left is speaking about peace and it's saying peace is around the corner and we have to fight for peace and make peace as now, immediately. And these two ideas, peace and completeness of the land, were clashing in the 80s and the 90s, and I would say marching into the first decade of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. But then but something happened to the right and something happened to the left. And in very, very broad strokes, mm-hmm. and it didn't happen to all the right, but I would say critical mass in the right, here's what happened. Oslo happened. Mm-hmm. In 1993-94, Israel leaves 40% of its sacred land. Mm-hmm. Ramallah, Bethlehem, Jenin, Shechem, we leave 40% of the land. And after a few years, this process was internalized by the majority of the right. And most people on the right feel that this is not reversible. Most people in the Israeli right don't want to reverse Oslo and to return to Tulkarem and return to Kalkilia mm-hmm. and to start managing the lives of Palestinians directly, mm-hmm. which means Yonit and Jonathan, the right, its majority, not all of it, gave up Shlemuta Aretz, gave up the purity of its ideology. That is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Now, let me take you to the left. If what sabotaged the purity of the right-wing ideology was Oslo, for the left-wing ideology, it was the second intifada. Mm-hmm. As we all remember, Ehud Barak, which was here in your podcast, yeah. <laughs> yes, in the summer of 2000, he goes with Clinton and Arafat to mm-hmm. Camp David. He offers Arafat an extremely generous deal. Arafat said no. And six weeks later, the second intifada True. broke. Mm-hmm. 1,100 Israelis are murdered in the Second Intifada. Mm-hmm. This led to the following process. One, Barak told Israelis, we don't have a partner on the other side. Mm-hmm. Two, Israelis realized that after we offered them a Palestinian state, their answer was a Second Intifada. Mm-hmm. As a result, the majority of the left don't think peace is possible in doing this generation. Here's what it means. If you ask right-wingers, One day, when we return to all the land, they'll say, yes, one day, maybe 50 years from now, the conditions will enable us to have complete sovereignty over all Judea and Samaria. You ask people on the left, do you think we'll have peace one day? Yeah, one day on the other side, there'll be a Palestinian version of Nelson Mandela and Gaza will be connected to to Judea and Samaria again, and there'll be the conditions that will enable us to go to a two-state solution. Not this generation, but maybe one day. So what does that mean? That the disagreement between right and left has shifted to the future. Mm -hmm. They disagree about what will happen one day in the future. About the present, they all agree. We shouldn't annex the West with Judea and Samaria, Mm -hmm. and we can't make a withdrawal from the same territories. So the present is now emptied from argument. And as a result, Mm -hmm. there is an invisible Israeli consensus agreement not regarding the irrelevant future, but there is a consensus regarding the extremely relevant day-to-day present. So so I suppose I like this idea of the invisible consensus. It's very appealing and it's persuasive. But in a way, I'm asking you how, what good is it? And in a way, also how real, therefore, can it be if it can never be actualized, if it can never be realized because of the other half of the paradox, namely the hatred. And we've seen that played out in very concrete form with this coalition. So you've sketched out why, in a deep way, there is this sort of unspoken agreement. 
But I'm not sure where it gets us if the minute these people who apparently under the surface agree with each other in your formulation cannot sit down beyond, you know, they lasted a year before it, the enmity between them unraveled the whole thing. So in a way, how, how real can it be, this consensus, if it can never be manifested? That's a serious challenge. I don't really know the answer to your challenge and to your question. I just want to notice one thing. The critique of this government is almost never about its policies. The critique is about the identities that are in this government. Right. So the critique, even the most ardent and harsh critiques of this government actually prove this point. We're polarized around political identities and affiliations. I'm a right winger. I'm a left winger. I don't like left wingers. I don't like. So it's just about identities, but it's not about policies. So even when Israel is so polarized and this government is so attacked, it's attacked because Bennett sits with leftists. It's an identity issue. Bennett sits with Islamists. Again, it's an identity issue. Now, in a very deep sense, this is not an Israeli problem. This is a global problem. When political identities become more important than political policies, so the whole world, yes, becomes paralyzed. And after saying that, Yonit and Jonathan, let's take a closer look at this experiment. I think only in Israel can we pull off this kind of experiment. And just let's just imagine the magnitude of this experiment. Our American listeners could try to imagine a situation where Ted Cruz from the far right and Elizabeth Warren from the far left, they can't vote with each other. Yep. Now imagine that they sit in the same government with each other and solve problems every day with each other. That is the Israeli government. And you would expect that such a diverse government, such a hybrid government, will also become a paralyzed government. Right? Because the right takes you to the right, the right. left takes you, can't you to do the left. And as a result, you're frozen and you're paralyzed. But the surprise of this government, that it wasn't paralyzed. It actually got things done. Mm -hmm. It actually liberated Israel from paralysis. So in Israel, a polarized government wasn't a paralyzed government. Why? Because Israelis agree on policies. I think it worked. Now for, you would for a year, <laughs> for, for well, a year and, and, and 17 days. Well, here's the thing. I think what failed was the numbers, meaning even a very, uh, a government with that, with all people that don't, don't only think the same, but also look the same and have shared identities. If it has only 61 mandates, mm -hmm. it's an unstable government mm -hmm. and every MK is king. And every MK could draw attention by somehow threatening the future, the stability of the government. So maybe what failed is the structure of 61 and not the essence and the content of a hybrid government. Maybe that's where we should locate the failure. I'll add another element to this discussion, which is personalization. I mean, we're obviously this whole political system has been sucked into the question of the Netanyahu yes or yes. no. This is what paralysis means, that the... Uh, anti-BB block that says anything but this man is pretty much tied with the block that says only this man. So how do we become unstuck? Like how do, where the pragmatic philosopher comes in and says, this is what we should do so we don't get into sixth, seventh, eighth elections. The debate over BB by a camp that admires the land he walks on right. and the camp that despises him blindly no matter what 
seems very pathetic, right? But it actually represents, it's a great window into this interesting moment in Israeli political life. Mm-hmm. I think if we see the history or the biography of the Israeli political debate, it has three generations. Generation one, roughly from 848 to Six-Day War. Mm-hmm. Israel was governed by Mapai, Mapai, Mifleget Po'alei Eret Israel. It's, mm-hmm. I would say, to the left of labor. Of, mm-hmm. It was very socialist. Ben-Gurion, at least in the very beginning, was inspired by Lenin. And had this vision of Israel being a country where there's solidarity between workers, offering an inspiring, exciting socialist vision for the world. Chevrat Mufet, Or Lagoim, that idea mm-hmm. was socialism. And there were people that didn't like the idea of big government, socialism, the Tzionim Aklalim, Begin. Mm-hmm. They wanted the government out of their life. They wanted privatization. That was the political, de- first generation of political debate. That debate started dying mm-hmm. after the Six-Day War. And it became irrelevant. Today, people's opinions regarding economic issues are not a part of their political identities. In Israel, it's unique. You could be a left-winger that's a capitalist, and you don't feel there's, there is a contradiction in terms there, right? right. Or a right-winger that's a socialist. There is Because after the Six-Day War, during the 70s, mm-hmm. the old debate, capitalism versus socialism, was replaced with a new debate. The debate of land and peace. Mm-hmm. Which we discussed. Yeah. That debate took over the Israeli minds. Mm-hmm. And that debate was tearing Israel apart. So we moved from big government, small government, to a different debate on the size of the country. Big country versus small country, mm-hmm. right? Sort Is of. right. And then that debate started dying. Mm-hmm. In the past four election cycles, no one mentioned the conflict because mm-hmm. it was replaced with a third debate, the debate about Bibi. Now I think the personalization of politics is actually a testimony to the fact that we started agreeing and the passion over Bibi disguises, it masks the formation of a new invisible Israeli agreement. This government tried, was the first attempt mm-hmm. to tap in to that moment to tap in to the invisible Israeli agreement. And in that sense, this government in, in, tried to go against the currents of history mm-hmm. in an extremely polarized world to create an extremely hybrid and heterogeneous government. This idea of Bibi being the new focus of the ideological division and therefore even the identity division, I don't know what to take from that, whether that's in, in some ways an encouraging thing because it won't be that enduring because eventually he'll leave the stage, or whether it's troubling that actually you can develop these sort of tribal hatreds around something as empty as one person. I mean, if you look at America, of course, there's pro-Trump and anti-Trump, and that tells you almost everything you need to know. But they would also disagree on the things you mentioned that Israelis, you say, agree on. I can't tell whether that's a cause for optimism for Israel or a cause for great worry. But So respond to that, but also respond to the idea that Actually, for Israel to manifest this agreement and invisible consensus, the person who has to just clear off and get off the stage is Bibi Netanyahu. Without it, the country is going to continue hating each other. Yes. So first of all, you'd say, you don't know if it's good or bad. Let's agree that it's very interesting. In America, there's a debate over Trump, but that debate somehow expresses ideological rifts and ideological gaps. In Israel, the debate over Bibi doesn't express ideological gaps. It hides the end of ideological Hmm. gaps. 
So, which might lead us to the conclusion that when BB goes, now we have nothing that's hiding the agreement. Now we could be exposed to the invisible agreement. That's a optimistic way to see it. Uh, maybe what will happen is we'll find a different thing to argue about because uh, politicians in the, the age of social media needs to ask what divides us and not what unites us. But hypothetically, it's very hard to imagine the past of the future. When this government, what, how will it look like when we're in the future? Now, I think it's very possible that in the future, after Bibi goes, when Israelis will ask, how do we navigate ourselves politically? We have a model here where different identities could share agreement regarding policies, sit together, and get real stuff done. We should get, so I was going to say, we should move on to the real stuff and getting it done. And I know this is something you've written about a while ago, but I think for people outside Israel, it might be quite a new and interesting idea. Your notion of shrinking the conflict. Yes. And you, you give it very practical form. And I think it'd be quite helpful if you tell us, um, you know, I think you've done the big picture thinking about how we got to this point, giving up the big dreams, but your kind of practical, I hesitate to use the phrase roadmap because that would be confusing. Uh, given the history, <laughs> but the pr practical steps that could be taken to shrink down this conflict. Yes, this is a, so if I'm right, and if there is an invisible agreement among majority of Israelis, I'm talking about a uh, moderate right-wingers, moderate left-wingers and radical centrists, <laughs> there is a, and like 75% of Israelis are there. So what is the consensus regarding the future of the territories of Judea and Samaria? What is the so it's a very weird consensus, and it sounds like this. Almost all these Israelis do not want to control the lives of Palestinians. At the same time, almost all these Israelis are afraid. They're afraid that if we'll leave the territories, we'll be threatened by those Palestinians. So you don't want to control them. You don't want to be threatened by them. What do you do? So till now, we were told a binary story. In order not to control them, I have to leave the territories. And if I don't want to be threatened by them, I have to stay in the territories. Therefore, there's a catch here. This is a catch. It's not a catch 22. I call this a catch 67. So how do we escape this catch? And this is where shrinking the conflict, Tzimtzum HaSichsuch, comes in. There is no Palestinian in the world that would accept an autonomy as a part of a deal that ends the conflict. So let's forget ending the conflict and build a viable Palestinian autonomy without ending the conflict, step after step. Now, what is a step that brings us closer to a situation where there is a, here's a line, two political entity situation. I'm choosing my words carefully. Not a two state solution, a two political entity situation where the Palestinians are living in a political entity that's not a state, it's an autonomy, because that's the only political entity that Israelis will feel protected from. We build that from the bottom up. And as a result, the Israeli consensus gets what it wants, controlling the Palestinians much less than we're controlling them today, but not being threatened from them more than we are today. Does that lead to peace? No. Will, that, will there still be hostility? Yes. Will there still be terrorist attacks? Yes. It doesn't end the conflict. It just reorganizes the conflict. So let's say that it's like more roads that that create some sort of, you know, easier for, for to Palestinians to travel and to ease travel abroad and expand employment in Israel and no settlement expansion. But here's my question yes, about this whole thing. If we take this notion and we say 
let's be honest. The Israeli left failed to convince the Israeli public that this issue can be resolved very quickly. In fact, probably failed to convince the Israeli public that this issue could be resolved at all. And the Israeli rights, two sides of the same coin, the Israeli rights succeeded in convincing the public that the status quo could basically go on forever. If you are giving these ideas for shrinking the conflict, we have to say uh, Bennett as prime minister really made this part of his policy, even said the words Tzimtzum HaSichsuch in his first inaugural address or tried to. Aren't you just giving tools to one side of the political map to continue this this situation forever? Um, on the contrary. Status quo is managing the conflict. Was that the question you wanted to ask, Jonathan? I'm just Very wondering. much. That sounded like a Jonathan Friedland like, question to me yeah, right. when You're I said channel, it out loud. We're channeling each other <laughs> right. so often. No, I mean, I, so, I, I, I agree with it. I think that's the risk. So okay. keeping things exactly the way they are, that's managing the conflict. Okay. Shrinking the conflict is changing real things on the ground. It's being active. Mm-hmm. Now, where does that take us? People say, what's the end game? So here's, I think, what's very powerful about this idea. It opens us up to multiple endgames. Because once Palestinians are moved from 30 points of self-governance to 70, it's a quantitative move, not a binary move. Right. More self-governance, much more self-governance. But they want freedom. They don't want a highway, Micha. I mean, okay. that's what we're no, saying. No, no, we right? want, okay, so now we want more freedom, freedom of movement, freedom to build, more freedom. Let's say your name is Gidon Saar or Naftali Bennett, mm-hmm. center-right or right-right, okay? And you say, my vision was Bibi's vision, an autonomy. Begin's vision, an autonomy. We're stopping here. Great. Let's say your name is Nitzan Horowitz. Okay, you're the leader of Meretz. Mm-hmm. You're hardcore leftist. You say, I have a vision of a two-state solution. Let's say the 1980s called. And there is a new, uh, the uh, Jordanian option of a Palestinian Jordanian confederation opens up. That's great. We take this Autonomy, and it fits into that also. By the way, Yossi Bailin has an idea that should be a Israeli-Palestinian confederation. There's great. This fits into that also. So once you build a Palestinian viable autonomy from the bottom up, mm-hmm. we have a building block that fits into multiple endgames. That is why right and left can agree on it. Now, Yonit and Jonathan, until now, we were suffering from the opposite paradigm. The paradigm was like this. We have to agree on the endgame, and then we can play the game. We can't agree on the end game, therefore we're not playing the game, and therefore we're frozen, and that is why we're trapped in a status quo. Shrinking the conflict is about reversing the paradigm. We don't have to agree on the end game in order to play a game. And let me give you a metaphor which works for Israelis. I hope it will work for the rest of our listeners. Let's say, Jonathan, you're in Israel now, and me, you and Yonit, we want to go to the south. So Yonit wants to go to Dahab, which is in Sinai for scuba diving. Sounds perfectly like me. (laughs) Just perfectly. (laughs) And I want to just stay in a lot and go snorkeling because I am not into that stuff. And Jonathan, you want to go into Aqaba and to go to Petra in the end. So we have different destinations. Can we share a cab from Jerusalem? I think we can. We can share a cab and we'll start the argument about the final destination to Sinai, to Eilat, or to Jordan somewhere around a few kilometers from Eilat, somewhere around Yotveta. So where is it taking us? Who cares? Let's now decide on real steps, building a Palestinian a political entity, which is a viable autonomy. Then we have a building block that fits into multiple endgames. If we have to now agree on the endgame, there's no game. But if we start playing the game, then options open up and we can start arguing about the endgame. 
I'm uh, I'm still worried about who's paying for the cab ride because I <laughs> I don't know because there are two best-selling authors here and uh, so I'm one of you like either Jonathan or Micha you're you're paying for the I'm not paying for the cab ride like I'm just we should uh, the idea is that we enjoy the ride. Ex- <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I don't know. As long as the air conditioning doesn't break down. Um, but I do want to ask, and I know you you're, you always try to sort of not have this attached to you because you, you've been attacked from the left and from the right. And you keep saying you're a centrist. But still, I mean, if you have to look into the future 30 years from now, what is the solution? What happens to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what I think. We could all have in our minds different endgames. This is, by the way, a halachic idea. Mm-hmm. In halacha, in Jewish tradition, it doesn't matter what you think, it only matters what you do. So one person thinks by putting on tefillin, you're changing God. The other person thinks by putting on tefillin, I'm changing myself. Who's right? According to Jewish t- tradition, who cares? As long as they put on their tefillin, together. Now, in a Protestant world, the only thing that matters is their narrative, their story, what they think. In a Jewish world, what matters is what they do. Shrinking the conflict is halachic politics. I don't care what you think when you connect Ramallah to Bethlehem with a road, which is a Palestinian road. If you're a leftist, you're in your mind, you're building a two-state solution. If you're a right-winger, in your mind, you're building Menachem Begin's autonomy. We know, But it doesn't, who cares as long as that road is built? This government is a government where, where Horowitz and Bennett could not agree on narratives. But they can't agree on actions. Let me just give you an example. This government tried to privatize the kashrut industry. If you would ask Nitzan Horowitz, what are we doing? He will say, we're creating higher degrees of separation between synagogue and state in Israel. Between religion and state in Israel. If you'd ask Matan Kahana and Bennett, they'll say, we're making restaurants more kosher and you're also shrinking the allergic reaction Israelis have to religion. Israelis don't like the religious establishment, and as a result, they don't like religion. So we're making religion more friendly. So Bennett thinks privatization of Kashrut makes Israel more Jewish. Horowitz says privatization of Kashrut is making Israel more secular. Who's right? Who cares? Yeah. It's about the action, not about the narrative. Let me ask you one That's last thing, because you, like Naftali Bennett, who, uh, with whom you have an interesting and sort of influential relationship, I think, have in common American parents. And one thing I'm interested in is about America and polarization in Israel in this way, which is not, you pointed out some of the differences, but there are sort of hints that some of that American polarization might be coming to Israel. And we saw it a little bit with the Roe v. Wade decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. And, I mean, you know, Yonit will tell, will tell me if I'm wrong, but apparently voices in Israel saying, oh, you know, that's an idea, maybe from the Israeli right, maybe we should start appointing judges to the Supreme Court, just like the American right do uh, there with the U.S. Supreme Court. What sign do you see that even though you've explained exactly how these societies are different, some of that quite toxic polarization from the United States could come and is coming to Israel with perhaps particularly figures on the Israeli right watching what's happening there and thinking, yeah, we should have a bit of that. Well, I think if the Israeli left will be influenced by the American left, that's very bad for Israel. And if the Israeli right is influenced by the American right, that's bad for Israel. As a friend of mine, Yaniv Cohen, the CEO of Tachlit, says, Israelis like to import a lot of things from the U.S. Let's not import American politics from the U.S. Now, But I think Israel is fundamentally different than the U.S. 
our polarization is different, and not only because we agree on issues and what separates us our identities. Also, I say, I, I think the, um, the battle lines are different battles. Mm-hmm. You mentioned my parents. <laughs> my mom is from Oklahoma City. My dad is from Springfield, Massachusetts. Hmm. I think those are the really, <laughs> there is nothing more Republican, conservative, right-wing America than Oklahoma and liberal, left-wing, Democrat than Massachusetts. Right? I think that's the, that's the extremes. And I observe, and I love both of my families, and I'm connected to them, but I realize there are two different Americas, and they're clashing. There's two Americas, right-wing America, left-wing America, and they're clashing. Israel clashes differently. When we clash over issues, it looks like this. There is an Israeli mainstream where you would find where people agree on most issues. Likudnikim, yesh atidnikim, Benny Gantznikim. I don't know if that's a word. There's a Benny Gantznikim? That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Like everything between Likud and yesh atid, they agree on most issues, including issues we've mentioned now. Where is there a gap between this large group and the extreme right, Anitamar Benvir? Where is there a a gap between this large group and the cosmopolitical left? And there's obviously a great divide between this group and ultra-Orthodox Israel and this group and Arab Israel. I would say the line, the battles, the, the real cultural war in Israel is not between right and left. It's between the center and the periphery. I'm talking about political periphery, political center and political periphery. There is a large group where there's majority of Israelis in the center when it comes to policies, and they're very different than ultra-Orthodox, Arabs, radical right, and cosmo-political left. So we actually have four lines of battles between political minorities and the large political majority in Israel. Yeah. What you convinced us is that Israel is a bigger mess. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Micha Gudna, thank you for reminding us that philosophers really should have a role in politics. No, no, they should never be. Plato was wrong. They should never be politicians. (laughs) (laughs) No, but have, but can be the sort of advisors or the. I I don't see myself as an advisor. I see myself as an observer. Israel is interesting and we're living in an interesting moment. I'm just trying to locate this moment in a broader picture. Yeah. So we thank you very much for helping us do that as well (laughs) and for being a guest on Unholy. And thanks, thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Yoni. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Micha. That was really uh, interesting to me and really does shed light, I think, on, in a way, the dog that didn't bark, the things that are not going to come up in this next election, this notion of there's an invisible consensus about what used to be the big things in Israeli politics, slightly explains why the coming campaign in Israel may not even really talk about the things that everyone used to talk about. Bad news, I think, for the Palestinians uh, and those people who care about the absolute deadlock in terms of the you know occupation, etc. But uh, I think Micha Goodman gets shed a lot of light on all of that. So really, really interesting to hear him. Um, we have our awards to hand out. I thought I'd go in with a little bid for the Mensch of the Week. Very tempted to hand that to Mel Brooks, who we love, age 96, but we did give it to him when his book came out. So he gets him an honourable mention, uh, which we is a great commendation, hotly sought, fought for, I know. Um, but instead, I thought we would have to hand a Mensch of the Week award to one Cassidy Hutchinson. Have you noticed, by the way, how in American political dramas, the sort of bit players often have the most fantastic names? They do. Um, do, do you know uh, that Aaron Sorkin always said that he would take names out of the list of football players because they always sounded the best? So I don't know about Cassidy Hutchinson, but that was his trick. Is that how he did it? Um, yes. 
because remember the um, woman who was drawn into the WikiLeaks row, whose name was Reality Winner. I mean, how how do you even get that, right? I mean, and just so often these people have amazing uh, names. So Cassidy Hutchinson, that's just a fantastic one. But she was one of the, you know, relatively junior aide in the White House. She was an aide to the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. But her testimony was a proper jaw dropper in these hearings into the January 6th attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill. And she revealed that Donald Trump was warned and told that the people storming the Capitol had arms, uh, were, were armed, had weapons. He didn't care. And at one point, this was the most sort of vivid bit of testimony that he was being driven and took, attempted to take the wheel of the limo from the his Secret Service detail and drive himself so he could go to the Capitol and join in the attempted insurrection. And it was only the uh, Secret Service who sort of pulled him off. And he was saying, you know, I am the effing president, I think is what he said, as he tried to, you know, literally take the wheel of the car. I mean, as somebody who has made up Washington political dramas, you could <laughs> not make up this one. And you certainly would be very proud of a character called Cassidy Hutchinson. But I think, look, people will criticise her for having worked in the Trump administration anyway. What kind of mensch is that? Some people would say. But it does take somebody to step up and just say uh, what happened. And so many of the others have refused to testify. So I think she can get our prize for this week. But so who um, who gets the chutzpah? nominees so many so many so candidates many, so many to choose from <laughs> but i will i will tell you i was going to go into israeli politics again but i think we did that enough so i will tell you of another story making rounds here in israel and has to do with uh the jewish rules of nida the rules around sexual conduct during uh, menstruation and there you suddenly had a lot of a list of rather secular non-religious celebrities talking on social media about how great it is for their marriage and how great it is for their lives and it sort of looked like it wasn't really a coincidence when this week it was revealed that actually it isn't a coincidence because there is a billionaire's daughter called uh, Ruti Levayev. She's the daughter of Lev Levayev. I think most people in the world would know the name Levayev out of someone who made that up and took the name of the family, Simon Levayev, who's, uh, what was it? The Tinder, the Tinder swindler. swindler yeah. But he has actually nothing to do with that family. He took the name just to make himself sound rich. Ruti Levayev is indeed heiress to the family. She paid these women to go out on social media and have these, uh, it seemed not like a campaign, but like a natural story. Now, of course, you can pay people, but uh, the point is that if you're trying to sell the spiritual thing that you have discovered, there's this personal journey, and it is disclosed that actually this was just a paid campaign, a little bit of a chutzpah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. I mean, that is fantastic. <laughs> Obviously, it is the non-disclosure element. I mean, we probably also should include honourable little mini chutzpah trophies to all the celebrities who are ready to take the money and go along with this and do it. I mean, really, uh, that's... Yeah, um, that's a chutzpah too. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, if you want to talk about all of that or some of the other stuff we've been kicking around on the podcast, do join our Facebook group, Unholy Podcast. You can chip in with ideas and opinions and send in your questions. You know, we should do a little session where we take um, – it can be a sort of ask us anything 
but you know, within limits. Um, ask, uh, session. ask Jonathan anything. I we like could, that. We like could that. know. I think it's ask us anything. And um, I think we can do that uh, in the coming weeks. Um, we have lots of people to thank as always. We do. And we want to thank Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat, Rom Atik and Irad Eshel for original music. I want to promise you, Jonathan, the next time we meet, we're not going to have a new prime minister. But you never know in this country. So just buckle up. It's going to be quite a ride. You've got at least seven days. I mean, I'm sure you can come <laughs> up with something. See you next time, Yoni. See you.